Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. My very special guest today on the Cappuccino podcast is an inspiring US Special Forces soldier who was medically retired after stepping in an IED and his incredible return story to active duty. Sergeant First Class Ryan Henriksen is a Green Beret. As the tip of the spear, his role is to ensure that the route is taken by US and Afghani troops are free of IEDs. And while rescuing an Afghani soldier in 2010, knowing that he was in unclear territory, Ryan stepped in an IED with his right foot. The device exploded, leaving his foot dangling at the end of his leg. Ryan not only had over two dozen surgeries and a torturous rehabilitation, but was medically retired, but fought to return to active duty. He's had multiple skin grafts to his legs and a right foot successfully attached to his lower leg. He then passed his crucial physical test and was able to join the Green Berets within a year and physically perform his duties, redeploying to Afghanistan in March 2012. In 2016, he volunteered to return to Afghanistan with Bravo Company 2nd Battalion 7 Special Forces Group, where during a firefight with Taliban, he risked his life under extremely heavy enemy fire to rescue three Afghani soldiers cut off from friendly forces and return the bodies of two Afghan soldiers under the ethos that nobody gets left behind. For his heroic efforts on the battlefield, Sergeant Ryan Henriksen was awarded a Silver Star, the United States' third highest award for valour. Ryan's been so good to take some time out with us and talk to us about his amazing book, The Tip of the Spear, his career and his life philosophy. So my great pleasure to introduce Sergeant First Class Ryan Henriksen, retired. Okay, so it's a very big uh, welcome to Ryan Henriksen. First of all, Ryan, before we start off, uh, congratulations on an incredible book. I'm not saying that just to blow smoke, you know where. Uh, but this book's got to be one of the best books I've read in 2021. Uh, just amazing, an amazing story. Um, and I know you probably hate it, but I'm sure that people, lots of people around the world read that book and just go, wow, what an inspiration. So um, well done, mate, because it's just an amazing book. What we normally yeah, I, do... Um, go on. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, what we normally do is we start off with a speed round dedicated to Speed, the world's greatest police... Uh, movie as far as I'm concerned uh, so here's mm-hmm. what we do okay so first thing is uh, and the, the <clears throat> listeners of this podcast have got a, a golden rule here so if they ever see Ryan Henriksen out in public they'll probably shout you a cup of coffee what type of coffee do you have if we're going to have a cup of coffee you, what kind of coffee would I have yeah uh, so I yeah I, I definitely like the um <laughs> I like the uh, churched up coffee. I, I I can't drink black coffee, even though I've been in the military for a long time. I, <laughs> I like the cream and sugar and everything else. So perfect, all good. All right. What's the most essential piece of kit that you have apart from your weapon when you're out in the field? Um, I've actually I've been asked that multiple times, and my ch- my answer changes depending on where my mindset's at, but <laughs> um. I would, I would honestly have to say the, gosh, uh, well, I mean, if it's, if it's winter time, then, you know, obviously, uh, uh, we call it a snivel top or, uh, or a cold weather top. Yeah. Um, if it's summertime, <laughs> iodine tablets, probably for water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would say I don't go anywhere without a without a multi tool, whether 
which is a knife, pliers, screwdriver, all kinds of stuff. Um, yep. I hear you. As, yeah. a, as a Leatherman wearer, I hear you. Uh, what was the yeah. last? What was the last book that you read? And you can't say your own because I know that you've read that multiple times. No, actually, I've never read mine. Um, oh, I really? wrote it, and so yeah. Uh, yeah, I wrote it, and I never read it. But actually, I just read an amazing book by Admiral um, Admiral McRaven. It's called The Hero Code. Ah, yeah, it hasn't come out in New Zealand, but uh, I read his first book, Make Your Own Bed. So yeah, I fully understand. Yeah. Um, do you carry any lucky charms with you when you're out out in the field? Have you got any lucky charms that you carry? Some guys uh, rubber bands, others uh, like uh, team bracelets. Um, yeah, actually, I do. So um, inside my body armor, uh, since 2010, I've always had an American flag up between my um, my chest plate and my body. So I've always had an American flag in my body armor. Um, I don't know if that's a lucky charm or if it's just um, that, but yeah, I've I've always had an American flag on my kit. So. Nice. And we'll get to the Seahawks flag later on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, what's the one thing that really pisses you off? The one <laughs> thing that drives you over the edge? The one thing that drives me absolutely insane is when people don't clean up after themselves, especially in the gym. Oh man. I, I do that. Yeah. 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 Square it away for God's sake, square it away. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the one thing that you know about New Zealand, something that you know about New Zealand and it's okay to say nothing. So uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And um, I know you guys uh, have, some extremely large great white sharks yep we do yep um yeah and i also know that uh some of the most beautiful mountains in the world are in new zealand oh hey there Um, you go other than other than that it's a bucket list country oh that's all good all right that's all good well check us out when you get here uh i'm gonna ask you this who plays you in the tip of the spear movie (laughs) so that's a hard question to answer because my favorite actor is Denzel Washington. Hey, yeah. I think there's a problem there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's my favorite actor, but I, I don't know. It'd have to be a, a short, bald, white guy, I guess, because that's yeah. what I am. So. <laughs> hey, look, it takes one to know one. Um, yeah. If, if I asked your wife who played Brian in the movie, who would she say? Who would play her? No, who would play you? Who would she want to play you? Well, she has um, she has a crush on Bradley Cooper, which I don't blame her. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. yeah, so probably probably him, but uh, yeah, and that's you know good yeah. taste. Yeah, yeah, hello, <laughs> it's all good. Um, now, be fair to say that you've had a fairly dysfunctional upbringing. Your f- family life was fairly mixed. You were all over the place. You had a father who was a Vietnam vet, uh, who was quite a strong uh, discipline. Uh, was quite strong with his discipline. You had a mom that wasn't there for a number of reasons. In New Zealand, we call them mums, not moms as well, by the way, FYI, Uh, (laughs) for a number of issues. Um, What was that like for you as a child? Because it sounded like you were moving all the time and, you know, unsettled and. Yeah. I mean, I mean, definitely growing up, uh, growing up the way that I did. um, When people say, where are you from? I I don't really have a place. Um, I was born in California, but so I claim Oregon because I spent most of my, I, I spent um, three 
I, I claim Lowell, Oregon, because I spent my eighth grade year to my junior year there, and then I went to a different high school. Um, so I claimed that as my hometown. But yeah, it was um, it, it wasn't easy. Growing up, you know, growing up poor, um, constantly on the move, um, just in you know in in the era where you know kids are just extremely just you know getting teased and whatnot mm. like that, and you know that's how I learned how to fight and um yeah it was it 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 was pretty uh it was challenging at times but you know we uh we made the best out of it uh that we could but yeah I, uh we we lived in a tent for about six months that that was something else uh yeah <laughs> precursor yeah. to what you were going to face i guess yeah so now you're yeah you're, yeah your dad kind of guided you towards the military because he didn't want you pushing gas at the age of 42 and talking about your senior high high school year um, yeah. was it, were you, was there any hesitation by you because you were maybe worried about the fact that you might turn out like your dad before he became a preacher or a pastor, I guess? So the, the only hesitation I had was of the unknown because I was scared to leave home, um, 18 years old and had never done anything. Uh, and so that, that was a, hesi- uh, a little bit of a hesitation, but um, at, you know, when I joined the military in 97, um, there, there was really no need. The army didn't need guys. The air force didn't need people. Uh, the Marine recruiter came through, but he was, he was too angry of a guy for me. I was, I was scared of him, but the Navy, he, uh, their recruiter came through and his, he just talked about going around the world and exotic ports and exotic women and all this other stuff. And I'm an 18 year old kiss all right, where do I sign up? So um, I was excited, but it was also, um, I was apprehensive because, uh, you know, I've never, never left home. Yeah. Your first uh, deployment after you joined the Navy was a bit of a eye opener as well, wasn't it? Because you got thrown in at the deep end when you were in the Middle East. So um, my, yeah, well, my first deployment was it, it was a little weird for me i mean i i you know got to istanbul turkey and then got out to the coast and then i you know uh met my ship out you know um when we were on port leave and uh are on liberty in istanbul um so and it was it, yeah i mean we had uh we, we had there were some issues with uh um iraq at the time and getting ready to go to war and then nope weapons inspectors are allowed back in and then kicked out, getting ready to go to war. And then, nope, they allowed them back in. But I would say my second deployment in the Navy was the biggest eye opener. And that's because uh, we were going through the, um, the Straits of Hormuz and, um, and the USS Cole got hit. And we were about, we were about eight to nine hours away from them. And we were the second, we, we, um, us and the Donald Cook showed up, to start, um, you know, body recovery and saving the ship and everything like that. And that was the first time that I ever saw, I guess, um, kind of the, 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 the carnage of somebody trying to kill you. Yeah. You yeah. know, cause before that it was all movies. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yep. And, uh, what a lot of people don't realize about you is that you've actually served, uh, Navy, Air Force and Army. And you actually applied for BUDS as well, didn't you? You, you were actually in the BUDS program there for a wee while. Um, for yep. many, 
you you didn't make you didn't make it through Bud's training, um, despite mm-hmm. being in your own words a fairly good swimmer. Does that eat mm-hmm. at you? Because I know that you've recently spoken to Jocko, and Jocko always mm-hmm. goes on about you know people who like fail Bud's never sort of they never sort of get over it and everything else. Did it eat at you after that you after you missed Bud's that you were sort of uh, you know because for some people that's the end game. They're like I, I'm not going to be a Navy SEAL. I'm done. I'm I'm out of it. Yeah, it um it there there there's parts there's parts that still bother me. And so and it goes like this. So it's not the fact that um I didn't make it through. If everybody made it through, then you know everybody would have a try in it. Correct. Um it's the fact that when I was when so I was I think it was like the second or the third day, nah, it was like second and a half day of hell week. Um um, I had pneumonia and a leg injury and I was getting, and they, they said, all right, you're getting rolled back to day one. And I was so upset about it. And, and um, I, I was so victimized by the fact that I didn't make it, that I, that I gave up on myself I said, I'm not going back to day one. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. You know, instead of looking back and being like, this was only six weeks of my life. And it's not that it was, it was the hardest thing in the world to do. It, it wasn't that at all. No. Um, it was the fact that I just, you know, and it was the, it was one of the first times that I really remember, um, you know, um, giving up on myself and, and it, it yeah, it did. It, it, it haunted me for, for a long time um, just because I could have went, back to day one and join the next class that was classing up in like, I don't know, six, seven weeks. And I would have been healed up. I would, wouldn't had pneumonia, everything would be good to go. But, um, instead I just, I made a knee jerk reaction. And, but what's funny about that day is, um, I've recently started to understand what I learned, the lesson that I learned from that. And I guess what I tell a lot of people is you may not see, um, the lessons in it, yet and so people are like ah oh, if you quit then it's failure and you never learn anything blah blah, blah. um then you, you know it's a failure and i agree with that to a point but when i fast forwarded to going through the q course and selection we were doing a final event in selection where we had to do a 30 mile uh forced march and the instructors um at the end point they put a cone up and the whiteboard and it said continue moving and people were quitting left and right and i saw that and i remember going back in my mind to when i gave up on myself and i was like yeah nope keep moving and i just kept going and they picked us up like a mile and a half later um yeah and so i didn't i i used i i really um you know i played the victim role and the poor me role and why didn't this work out and everybody else's fault and blah 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 the list goes on And then I started to get really like upset that, you know, I gave up on myself about it. And then finally, um, you know, within the last couple of years, I actually started to see that the lesson that I learned from um, that incident at Bud's actually probably got me through selection. Yeah. You talk about a term. I've heard you use this in other podcasts. I've never heard it before. And I think it was something that your wrestling coach said to you about failing forwards. That's a great Mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's amazing it's, for me. That's yeah, that's a really good saying. A really good saying. Um, so you leave yeah. the navy, you join Civvy Street. 
so many service people don't do well when they go to what we call civvy street when they leave the services mm -hmm. why do you think that is do you think it's a loss of identity do you think it's the fact that they're uh having to put up with as you and i would probably say some bs from civilians who don't quite get the same <laughs> mindset as service people what do you think it is so there's there, there's a couple of reasons for it um number one is a lot of guys so when you were in the military you you had you had a status you were um if you're in the army you were sergeant so-and-so and you led this many troops or you were you know um petty officer so-and-so and you had you were responsible for this this and this and if you didn't do this then the ship didn't do this or the infantry battalion didn't do this or the ODA didn't do this, whatever the job is. And mm -hmm. so you had a status and you were known when you get out. One of the hardest things that service members and including myself, we can't wrap our minds around is nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares what you did. No. The only person that cares about your military career as much as you is you. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. It's, you know, um, and, I was actually told that by Medal of Honor recipient, and it made a it made a lot of sense to me. Um, he said because he said you can't and it's and it's not their fault. You can't expect people to care. So one reason why people struggle so much when they get out is because number one, um, they can't let go of who they were in the military, and by all, and and you're not supposed to let it go, no. but people have a hard time adapting. And so they think people should care. And when people don't care, then it creates a lot of issues with them. And that's where they start having the, um, the, I, I guess the, um, the, what's it called? The disorder, you yeah. know, like you just don't get along with others and stuff like that. And I yeah. know this because I went through it, yeah. you know, and the old, the old saying, like, you have no idea what I've been through. Well, yeah. no, obviously they don't number one. And number two, why is that their fault? Yeah. And I had to actually come to that conclusion when I was about ready to rip a guy's face off in the supermarket. Um, I had to come to that conclusion that why it's not his fault. He doesn't know what you've done. Yeah. And, yeah. and who, who made you God to think that he should know what you've done. Exactly. Like, get, over, yeah, get over yourself. So that's number one. Um, uh, I, I think, and that is the fact that you don't hold the same status as you did when you got out and you can't let that go. And then um, number two, um, and I think this is this is uh, for all Western nations, is I don't think we're really good at preparing soldiers um, for civilian life. Like there's programs um, before you get out and you should go to these programs and it'll help you figure out what jobs are out there and help you make a resume and all this other stuff. And that's great, but it still doesn't really prepare your mind. And I don't know the answer for that. I really yeah. don't. There's a lot of good um, outreach programs and stuff like that that helps veterans transition. Um, I think those are helpful, but they, yeah, that's that's just one thing. I mean, because the military, you know, a job's a job, but the military is a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, and not wrong. You can't, you can't undo a lifestyle. No. And so you have to learn how to adjust and adapt. And that's where I think a lot of guys get caught up. So Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, and when you think about it in hindsight, that just goes to prove to you how amazing those guys from the greatest generation were that went to World War II and people like your dad mm -hmm. going to Vietnam because they didn't have half, well, they didn't have any of the programs or 
anything else that we had. So full credit to them. So you go and join the Air Force. Yeah. What prompted you to turn around with that? You, you, you're at Civvy Street and then it's off to the Air Force. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I was a, I was a civilian for a couple of years and I just, <clears throat> like I said, 9-11 happened. And I honestly, um, I thought after 9-11, we were just going to, we were, we were going to do like we did in Somalia and um, hit them with a bunch of Patriot missiles and it'd be done. Yeah. Um, but then when Iraq kicked off in 2003, I knew like, okay, this, this is actually something that's going to happen. And it, and it just started really nagging at me like, Hey, you need to do your part. You only did four years. You can contribute more and you're not a real good civilian. So, and, um, and so, you know, my wife and I had talked it out and we agreed upon the air force because I'm sorry, ex-wife, we agreed upon the air force because she was prior army and she didn't want to go back to that lifestyle. And so we agreed upon the air force and that's kind of how, um, um, I got, you know, uh, into the, uh, air force. And then one day you happen to see a poster that has a person in a uniform that's half <laughs> half Air Force, half Army, saying go blue to green, and yep. you decide to go for it. What prompted that? Because that's not like a minor decision. By this stage, you've got to be saying to yourself, come on, Ryan, it's only the Army and the Coast Guard left, and I've pretty much done them all. What what prompted that? So... Um... You know, in, like, like I said in the book, um, I was going through a divorce yeah. and I, I needed, I, I needed a, I needed to overhaul my entire life. You know, I, I, I was just at that point in time, all I was doing is existing. Um, mm-hmm. I had not, I have not done anything to step out of my comfort zone. Um, I had not done anything to, you know, I mean, buds was challenging, but you know, I didn't make it. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. I, I, I just, I needed a win. I needed, I needed something to hang my hat on. And, um, I happened to go uh, to the personnel office when I saw this poster and it, it just, it was at the same time, you know, I'm going through a divorce. I need to get out of the area that I'm in and I need a dramatic change. And so I went in and I talked to him and they got me to an army recruiter and he was telling me about, you know, infantry and these jobs. And then, Oh, by the way, special forces. And, you know, I'd, um, I'd had my, you know, my failure at buds, which still hung around in my head. And, and so I was like, all right, well, I have no idea what I'm getting into none at all, but I need, I I need a W. And so I just said, yep, I'm going to go special forces. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And, and, and that's what, um, that, that's what started that whole path for me. Um, and it was, it was just perfect timing because I needed, I, I needed something that was hard enough to give me confidence and long enough to keep my mind off of the, the crap storm I created just being a, a kid, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's perfect. God's you, perfect timing, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And you went all the way back, didn't you? You went all the way back to basic when you joined the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, there's a pair, there's, well, I remember hearing a story that when you got to uh, basic, your sergeant basically said to you, you realize, Henriksen, that you don't have to be here. And you were like, mm-hmm. no, nah, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm here for the full, full slog. Yeah. I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do all of infantry basic, um, everything, um, all the way from the start to the end, because uh, like I said, I just, 
downtime was 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 really downtime was not good because that gave me time to think and yeah. i didn't want time to think i just yeah. wanted to move yeah move yeah. all the time all right so but most people when you say green berets particularly new zealanders because we see a lot of different uh military forces from around the world everybody knows what a navy seal is because as the old old jokers with service people you know you know it's a navy seal because they've written a book or mm. made a movie out of it yep um when you say green berets mm-hmm. they, they normally think of John Rambo or John Wayne's movie, The Green Berets. Can you give us some yeah. idea of what, what the yep. pr- primary function of a Green Beret is as such? Yeah, so we actually, um, primary function of a Green Beret without getting too in depth, but yep. um, because you can Google it, um, yep. so I, I'll, I'll talk about it, but it's unconventional warfare. So um, John F. Kennedy actually he was, he, I mean, it goes, it goes all the way back to uh, Colonel Aaron Banks and the, uh, and the OSS. And then after the OSS was disbanded, they needed a answer for um, the basically instability around the world. And so we got um, training, basically we had guys go to SAS and they were like, yep, this is what we need. We need, we need an SAS type of unit in America. And so and John F. Kennedy, he 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 wanted an unconventional aspect to combat communism and whatnot. And so the Green Berets, we were established. Um, and first group was tenth group. But um, what I, I guess what I'm overall what I'm getting at is um, a Green Beret. It's we make our I, I guess we make our money in unconventional warfare. And unconventional warfare is is basically, I mean, the, the definition is um, um, activities conducted to enable a resistance element or an insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow operating with or through an insurgency guerrilla force or an underground in a denied area. So what all that means is um, we go in, and I'll take Afghanistan, for instance, we went into Afghanistan, we linked up with the Northern Alliance. And with the Northern Alliance, we then, the occupying power was Al-Qaeda and then soon after Taliban forces. And so we linked up with the Northern Alliance and started our insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow <laughs> the occupying power and government. And we, and we did it with the Montagnards in Vietnam. Um, it, it's just, you know, and, and, and with, the, um, with the Kurds um, multiple times during, in Iraq, so yeah, that's that's what we make. That's what we're known for is unconventional warfare. Yeah. Okay. So the training in the book, the training sounded really arduous, and like uh, a lot of elite units, you don't know when you've passed. The instructors are always playing sort of mind games with you, like you said. You know, keep moving forward <laughs> with the cone and that type of stuff. There's always a challenging moment in selection courses or training for units and everything else. When you were doing the selection course for the Green Berets. What was the bit of the course where you thought, you know, what if I'm going to go? It'll be now the bit that you struggled on. The the part in selection that I struggled on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a hard question to answer because uh, we so I think we averaged out of the entire. I think my selection class was 16 days. I think it was, mm-hmm. 
we got out of all the time combined, maybe it was um, 24 hours of sleep. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit more. So it's, it, it's hard for me to remember, but like exactly what I struggled on because everybody was struggling. And I, I, I think the, um, what I was, what, where I made my money at it was, um, I, I, I would get on the hardest, um, the, the heaviest parts of the loads, or I would carry the heaviest stuff or whatnot like that. But I think where I struggled the most was, was probably mentally because every time an instructor would, you know, pull out his clipboard because they didn't yell. It wasn't a course where they yell and scream at you. Mm -hmm. They just look at you and start writing and you're like, Oh gosh. (laughs) So yeah, I think it was not, you know, understanding that he's doing that probably just to see what reaction he would get out of me or whatnot like that. But the mind games that that plays um, Mm. that, that was, that was pretty tough. But, um, but for the most part, it was just, I mean, that, that, that was the great thing about selection was it was so hard that everybody was hurting. Yeah. And so if everyone's hurting, then it's not that bad because yeah. <laughs> we're all, we're all in it together. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. There was nobody there that was like, ah, this isn't hard. Yeah. Everybody was hurt. Yeah, so. exactly. Nobody's coming to save us. Uh, yeah. So then you deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 and with Alpha Company, 2nd Battalion, 7th Special mm-hmm. Forces as an 18 mm-hmm. Charlie, uh, which not many people in New Zealand will know. So it's an engineer who has the unenviable task of doing such tasks as clearing and detonating IEDs, uh, demolitions and fortifications. Um, What what was it like going to Afghanistan for the first time after all the training and your career and your life path and everything else? That ramp comes down and you're like, boom, here I am. I'm in the theater. I'm in Afghanistan. What was that moment like for you? So it was... um, It was amazing. It, it like so when we stepped off the aircraft, um, you know, the first thing that hit me in the face was the heat and the smell. Um, but I was so excited that I was actually a part of something. You know, like I I I went to I went to selection in the Q course and I started something and I finished it. Now I'm a Green Beret. Oh, now I'm in Afghanistan and I'm actually you know I'm considered one of the um, uh, one of the premier. Um, um, special operations elements that's in Afghanistan at the time. So it, it, it felt, it felt good, but the, the, the trick was I was extremely excited inside and I want to be like a kid and take pictures of everything, but you got to always look cool. So, you know, it's like, ah, I got to pretend like this is just, you know, this happens every single day for me. This is no (laughs) big deal. But inside I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing in the world. But it was that act that is like, you got to pretend like, just another day in the park so yeah that was uh <laughs> that was the, the the whole rule number one for any special operations unit around the world is is you got to look cool and yeah. if you're running around excited like a little um, schoolboy, you don't look cool so but in my mind and in my heart yeah i was uh i was ecstatic like i'm on the ground and um we're we're gonna go out and i'm and eventually i'm gonna see what every man um wants to know is what will I do when someone's trying to kill me? How will I react when the bullets are flying? And I'm about ready to answer that question. And so, yeah, I was pretty excited. Yeah. And um, for the listeners that haven't seen your Instagram account or haven't followed you on social media, uh, Ryan and the 18 C's have a particular really cool habit, I guess, of 
they like to blow stuff up in the background but not actually react to the explosion in the background so they're like it's a, the uber cool photo so yeah i've seen some of those photos man they're like holy um for those of us who've never been to afghanistan um, yeah. obviously we've heard about it right um it looks like a country of real extremes you know you've got uh, you can go out in the mountains and you can freeze to death. You can uh, die of dehydration and fatigue in the middle of the desert. What's it? What's it like as a country? It just seems like a real mixture. Oh man! Yeah. yeah. Oh, it one hundred percent is. It is absolutely insane. So, I've done a deployment. Um, my two thousand and eighteen to nineteen deployment. Um, we 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 had we had the national mission brigade, which means that we can be anywhere in Afghanistan with um, our commandos. And so I did a mission where we were in Wardak, um, which is uh, Wardak province. And it's really, there's a lot of mountains there. And we were into knee to um, um, hip uh, deep snow, doing an infill up this, uh, you know, up this, um, up this hill and going to these villages and whatnot and just freezing. And then uh, we were out in, um, in the desert and we're out there with shorts and shirts on or shorts and no shirts on and, and everything like that. And then we go, um, we go to another place and it's, and, and it's humid. And so, yeah, I mean, basically in the South, like where I'm at right now in the South, it's, it's desert and yeah. you're, it's, it's hot. Um, you start getting up to the central areas and you start getting into the Hindu Kush and whatnot like that and start getting some desert slash mountains or whatnot. And then you start getting up North and you got more mountains and, but yeah, there's definitely um, you, any, any day you can be in any of the extremes um, minus a hurricane. You can be in any of the extremes in Afghanistan. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, yeah. That's what it seems like. It's not like just take a day back and you'll be sweet. Um, what's now as a street cop, when we have an IED or a bomb or something else like that, you know, we're calling in specialist squads. We're coordinating the area and everything else. Not you. You're, you're at the front. You're looking for them. Uh, what's it like to clear an IED? Because for many of us, we've got like visions of like the hurt locker. And I know that you don't have time to put on suits and all that type of stuff. Mm. Um, no, we don't have suits. Yet. No, exactly. Yeah. And you can't carry them all anywhere. So the pressure must be immense because you're the guy for the team, aren't you? Because if you get it wrong, and somebody gets screwed up behind you, you're kind of responsible for it. So wh what's it like to clear an IED knowing that your guys are behind you and that you've got to get it right? Yeah, so, I mean, it, the, the, the pressure is, is pretty intense because it's not the fact if I hit an IED, okay, yeah, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> but if I missed one and my buddy hit it or yeah. my teammate hit it, you got to live with that the rest of your life. And um, so, yeah, the, pre the, the pressure is, is pretty high, but what's crazy about IEDs is, is they're actually not that difficult to find because it's, 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 it's very hard to, um, to dig into the ground, bury an object and cover it back up and make it look natural again. Yeah. So how the Taliban, how the Taliban like to uh, make up for the fact that um, if you have time, you're they're they're pretty obvious is they like to shoot at you, which makes you rush. And yeah. as you rush, then you rush to failure and stuff like that. But the, um, but no, the pressure, the, the pressure is intense. I mean, if we're, if we're doing an infill, um, I know locations to look just because I've done this enough. 
And so if we have a compound of interest, um, I'll know that around that compound, there's probably IEDs, the compound could be booby trapped. And then as you're approaching the compound, there could be IEDs on the main um, avenues of approach or the footpaths or something like that, because they know that your, your average run of the mill soldier is gonna take the path of least resistance. And that's what they IED. So, um, or, you know, you can have breaks in the wall or something like that. And there's probably gonna be an IED in there. And so with me, I mean, um, once, once, once I get a, you know, I get a visual on something that doesn't look right. And then I confirm that visual with my mind detector and it's like, okay, yep. Something's not right here. Then I start to probe with my, with my mind probe. And once I expose part of the pressure plate or I got some of the, the switch or the, um, the main charge, the jug, um, I'll just put a block of C4 there and, uh, and get back and, and let, let, let the block of C4 do the digging for me. And <laughs> most of the time, once that initiates, you'll get the C4 um, explosion followed by the secondary explosion from the IED. If you don't get the secondary explosion, then you go back and I put another block down and I just wait for that and then move on. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of the times when we're infilling in, um, we don't want people to know we're there. So um, we do what we call mark and bypass. And so at night, if we're marking in bypass, we'll use these, these infrared. So you can see them with your night vision. Yep. Um, glow in the dark sticks, um, Kim lights. So IR Kim, or um, if it's during the daytime, I always carried around um, little bottles of chalk and I would just mark the outline and then we would bypass it because we didn't want these loud explosions happening and people could, you know, all of a sudden now, Yep, Americans are here. Let's let's get ready. Let's let's get ready to fight. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read a good story about a guy with an infrared light who was being tracked by the enemy, and they ended up dropping a bomb on him. But we'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> yeah. Your hypervigilance level must go through the roof when you are doing your IED searches and everything else. How do you keep it in check when you're on patrol, and then when you come back to base? I mean cops suffer from hypervigilance it's what we do when we're out on the street and a lot of us when we yep. come back it's no, nowhere near the similar sort of stress level but it's quite hard for us to some of us to get to sleep or to unwind or relax or anything else how do you keep it in yeah. check um so for me yeah the hypervigilance is 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 very hard and i learned i learned early on that um if we've been out on mission you know, three, four or five days out on mission, whatever. And it's been a kinetic uh, mission, a lot of gunfights and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, even when I get home, um, I'm still going to be, you know, I'll just, I'll be dead tired, yeah. but I won't be able to sleep because it's too quiet. There's nothing happening. Yeah. And it's, you're trying to process everything you just went through. So um, I think as I, you know, as I gained experience and whatnot like that and, and got, I guess, used to the gunfights and the hypervigilance of finding IEDs and whatnot like that. Um, I was able to, to kind of put it in the place that I needed to. Mm -hmm. Um, and because it, it's still, it's, it's hard to unramp once you're ramped up. Yeah. But, um, I was, you know, I, I, I was able to kind of like put it where it needed to go. And then, um, and then slowly, but surely you'd, you get a little bit of sleep and then a little bit more. And then next thing you know, it's, it would be like day three, and I would sleep probably 14 hours straight, 15 hours straight. And then it's like, okay, good to go. Back in the game. Uh, yep. All right. Yeah. And then September 11, 2010, 
you get out and you go head towards the Helmand River. And if any of these pronunciations are wrong, just tell me. You enter the Chitutu Valley and clear Taliban to a central, to try and clear the Taliban to a central point. Uh, it's not covert because it's in a, in a valley. So it's an extremely high risk mission. And you eventually make your way towards the village of Satutu. Uh, mm-hmm. You intercept Taliban comms and they know that you're headed your way. So your team breaks up and to cover a bigger area. So you have yourself, a sergeant, and six Afghans, including your interpreter, Nick. You go to mm-hmm. the first compound. The Afghan troops tell you it's too dangerous to, to go on because they're scared. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, when I read that part of the book, I was just like, you're kidding me, aren't you? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't move forward. And then Nick, your interpreter, starts walking towards the compound. Do you want to tell us the rest of the story to the eventual climax there? Yeah, so um, so we were trying to uh, get the we were trying to get our Afghan counterparts to to start clearing the first compound of interest because um, it, at this time it's September twelfth. Um, we had started the mission September eleventh. Oh, it's early morning September twelfth during daylight hours because you're just you're just setting yourself up for an ambush. Mm-hmm. We, um, uh, when the, when, when they're finally, we, all right, they're not going to move. I turned around to, um, to talk, you know, talk to my uh, team sergeant about it. And he, he just leaned into me and he's like, Hey, get Nick away from that compound right now. This is what he talk about. Look back and Nick had moved about 25 meters down to the first compound. And he was trying to like show the guys that it was safe. Come on down here and whatnot like that. And so I moved down, um, you know, following uh, pretty much where I thought he stepped and, um, you know, grabbed a hold of him. It's like, hey, man, this wrong answer. Get back now, because if you lose your turp, um, your interpreter, you can't talk to your Afghans. And if you can't talk to the Afghan forces, then, yeah, <laughs> well, you lost the initiative. So I pulled him, you know, he was monkeying around with the um, with the entrance or the breach point, And there was this stick, you know, a bunch of sticks leaned up against it. And I grabbed the hold of him. I was like, back up now. And so I pulled him back and you never want to have any of your, any of your exposed body parts to the breach or doorway or whatever you want to call it. And so I turned back in. So my M4, um, so I had coverage inside the compound in case a guy uh, decided to pop out and start spraying rounds down. I could, you know, I could shoot him. And so um, and then I remember there was a blind spot. And so I stepped in a little bit to look on the, the side of the, uh, of the mud wall to see, you know, if, if there was something there. And uh, that's when I, boom, <laughs> stepped on the IED right, right inside the, we call it a breach point, but doorway. So. Yeah. Yeah. And he says that with a smile on his face as well, guys. So that's uh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> You're looking down at your leg, and these are your exact words. My tib and fib were poking out, but I couldn't recognize them because they were so white. It was probably the whitest thing I've ever seen, and having seen people's bones, I fully concur with you. Uh, yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking over at my boot, which was probably about six inches away from me. You tried to stand up a couple of times as well, didn't you? Automatic reaction, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but you obviously couldn't. What's your thought process at that moment? So... Um, I was actually getting pissed because I kept trying to stand up and I kept falling over and I was getting mad because I couldn't figure out what the problem was. Um, 
because nothing hurt. And so all the movies or the stories or or the rumors you hear, you get blown up. Um, apparently it hurts really bad. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. So, but nothing, nothing was hurting at the time. And so I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stand up and I was just getting angry. And, um, and I knew that I, I, but I couldn't see anything because the dust, um, from the explosion. And, um, and so, yeah, slowly, but surely as once, once I, once the pain started to register and the dust started clearing a little bit, I was able to look down and, and in my, uh, my boot was at an L to my leg. So it looked like, you know, my, my, uh, my leg was at an L at the very bottom and it still didn't register in my mind. So I grabbed behind my knee and I picked it up and my boot flopped over to the yeah. side of my leg. And I was like, Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I just stepped on an IED. I think this is pretty bad. Yeah. And then the pain, once I realized what happened, then the pain kicked in and that's, yeah. but before I knew what happened, it really didn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, do you ever get sick of telling the story when people find out that you're that guy? I mean, they probably mm -hmm. also, you know, what's it feel like? And hey, man, can I have a look at your leg? And uh, like you listen to people like Dakota Meyer, and he always says, you know, for me, it's uh, I have to relive the trauma every time I tell that story of uh, how he won his Medal of Honor. Um, do you, mm -hmm. when you're telling the story, do you sort of go back there every now and then and think, geez, if I, because you actually think that you had your foot on the pressure plate, didn't you? And it was when you moved to go back, it's gone up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, so it, it's weird. I go through my phases. If I'm telling this, if I'm telling the story on my own accord, then I don't have a problem with it at all. Yeah. But if, if someone blindsides me with it, like, Oh, what, what happened to your leg? And they're in, and I feel like they're kind of being rude or, um, or very uh, just, well, basically just being an asshole about it yeah. um, because they don't, they don't know, they don't have proper manners. You don't just walk up to your guys, man, your leg looks tore up. What happened? Yeah. So I come, so I come up with stories. So <laughs> I've been, I've been bit by a shark um, as a, um, as a, uh, a marine biologist tracking uh, migrations of sharks, I've been <laughs> mauled by a grizzly bear as a, uh, as a trail guide in, in Canada or Montana or wherever. Um, I've, I've been in a motorcycle wreck. I've put my leg through a wood chipper. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's usually what happens when I don't want to talk about it, but no, when somebody is genuinely like when they, when they have a genuine, are they they're they're genuine they want to know and they're in and it's you know i feel like it's yeah i mean you know um yeah. they're they're sincere about it then yeah I'll, I'll tell them what happened but so me telling the story um that doesn't bother me what bothers me is when people get overly emotional about it and the whole thank you for your service and all this other stuff i'm like i'm not telling you this for pity yeah. I, I yeah. don't, I don't want pity. I knew exactly what the job entailed. Yeah. And like my dad said at the hospital, I was like, yeah, I figured something like this would happen. He's like, Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. that's, that's what I don't like is I don't like, I don't like the pity party after it, you know, um, because that's not what I'm asking. That's not why I'm telling you. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm telling you because I mean, why not? It's, yeah. you know, and, and it's definitely not the, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened. So 
Yeah. Now I'm going to skim a bit here because I want people to buy your book. So I'm not going to tell them your book page by page. Um, so mm -hmm. after, after a med back and about 26 operations, including a halo on your leg, your surgeon mm -hmm. suggests a revolutionary surgery, which has about a 10 to 15% chance of success because basically your leg is hanging on by skin, isn't it? Everything else yeah. is pretty much yeah gone. How many yeah. months were you in hospital? How did you cope with the isolation and the depression? In fact, let's be honest, the shit sandwich you, you were dealt with because I've laid, mm. in, I've laid in hospital for a couple of weeks and by about day mm. three or four, I'm like, I've watched all the TV programs. I've read all the magazines. I've had all the visitors I can do. Yeah. How did you handle it? So um, most of my hospital time, I, I was so drugged up on painkillers, you know, methadone, um, I mean, Dilaudid, just everything else, because I was having a limb reattached, and, yep. which is, which is uh, a, no, no small process. But no, yeah. um, so a lot, a lot of my hospital time was very blurry for me. But as, as I started to figure out what happened, and as I started to kind of, um, you know, like, like I said in the beginning, um, having too much time to think is not a good thing. No. Um, as I had time to think then, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely, there, there were some very challenging moments there of, of keeping your sanity, but I also started with, uh, I started waging my own little unconventional war on, you know, the, the nurses and whatnot like that, whether it would be, you know, just laying, laying there completely naked because, you know, it's, or, or I, or once I was able to actually get in a wheelchair, I'd, I'd wheel down to the, to the gym and, and try and work out and nurses would see me and just freak out. Or I, <laughs> or when I just had a leg reattached, I would try and get up and walk. And, and so I, I just, I just had these little, just very, very um, uh, terrible twos defiant <laughs> moments, you know, just being a child for the nurses. And they were like, Oh man, you are, you are hard. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it was stuff like that, but the nights were the worst because you actually had time to think. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, like I said, in the book, you know, I, um, I had found out about buddies that were killed on, on missions shortly after mine and, um, and stuff like that. And so, you know, those ghosts, they, they, they tend to visit at night, uh, usually the most, and it's not, it's not always a bad thing. It's, it's good to remember, but you got to understand how to do it healthily. Yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, so it's, it's just one of those things. Yeah. But, now your dad gave you some amazing advice at your bedside, didn't he? With your yeah. leg. Yeah. Do you want to tell us what that advice was? Just. Yeah. So, so kind of like, um, kind of like I was telling you guys with, uh, with the bud situation and, um, you know, failing out and oh, poor me and, and why me? And, and so I started to go down this, this, this poor me victimization um, rabbit hole. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I was starting to feel sorry for myself and becoming the victim. And why did this happen to me? And, and I screwed everything up and, and all this other stuff. And my dad, he, you know, he, he told me, he's like, Hey, um, we need to have, a, we need to have a talk. And uh, he said, you know, you got, you got Delta, you got Delta rough one. Um, and you definitely, you know, you're, you're lucky you survived, but he said, there's a, you have a few choices you can make. 
And he said, right now you've been handed a golden ticket. And he said, you probably don't understand that right now. And you're in so much pain that you can't see how this is a benefit at all. He says, but it is. You got handed the golden ticket to reset everything. He said, as you were laying there along the Hellman River, um, I thought I was going to die. And I remember looking back and I was like, man, I wish I would have. I wish, I wish this, this, this. What if, what if, what if? He's like, you have that second chance. You can go back and, and, and you can do those I wish I would have and the what ifs. You can fix all that. And he said, most men don't get a second chance. He said, you, you got the second chance. He said, and as rough as it sounds or it seems right now, um, he said, what you do with this injury is gonna is is gonna define your future. And basic, and he said, um, there's two paths you can take. The first path is you can become your injury. You can allow this injury to define you and be who you are, and you will never leave September 12th, 2010. You will always be. September 12th, 2010, that will be your life. And you will drive people away because they can't possibly understand, but you will try and force them to understand. And it's going to be a miserable life. Or you can use this experience, you can use this incident to make yourself a stronger man, get mentally stronger, you can uh, renew your relationship with God, you can use all those things that as you were laying there on the river wishing you would have or didn't act or would have acted or whatever it is, you can fix all that. That is all in your power. He said, but there's one thing that I can promise you right now. He said, how you deal with this situation is going to determine if you look back as an old man and you're proud of yourself with how you dealt with this or you're ashamed of yourself. And he said, don't be that old man that's ashamed of how you handled it because that's a death sentence. Yeah. And so that, that was pretty much, you know, the, the long and the short of it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good yeah. advice though. Oh uh, yeah. And yeah. You, you clearly took it on. So you have a mm -hmm. special brace, you have multiple skin grafts from your, from your butt to your foot. So uh, like you said in the book, you've got like a baby skin foot. Uh, so you got to look yeah. after it. You get the nickname Wolverine from the nurses because you heal so quickly. Um, yep. the, the rehab sounded like an absolute killer. Um, what mm. was it that what was it that drove you on? Was it the fact that you were getting back to your unit? Was it the fact that it wasn't going to beat you? Was it what your dad said to you? Or was it everything that was sort of uh, there's no way I'm getting down? So it was it was all of those things. And at the time, I didn't know I was going back to my unit because they had told me I was going to be medically retired because um, I wasn't fit for duty. And so I had to I had to get a continue on active duty waiver. But it was all of those things combined, plus, you know, what my um, sergeant major, Brian Reary, what he told me in the hospital was, if you can get yourself um, back and cleared, I'll send you back to war. And it was a big deal for me that I didn't want the Taliban to beat me because I remember them on ICOM chatter and ICOM is their radios that they talk on. Mm -hmm. um, I remember on remember them on ICOM chatter, they were cheering and, and celebrating when I got hit and laughing about it. And I'll never forget that. Yeah. And I didn't want them to win. Like they bloodied me up, but you didn't, you didn't stop me. And I wanted to get back. So that was one of my biggest drives. And then if you add that onto just being too dumb to quit, um, it kind of, <laughs> kind of worked out perfectly, but yeah, my, my big thing, I mean, yeah, it sounds great to get back to your unit and all that stuff, but I, um, 
I had to get back to Afghanistan because I, I wasn't going to let the Taliban beat me. Yeah. And so that, that was my drive. Yeah. Now I'm not going to, like, we won't go into too much detail because again, I want people to get out and buy your book. By summer 2012, you're back in Afghanistan and operational. Now you're going to love this bit because this is how you're kind of known in New Zealand. Uh, lots of us in New Zealand know you as the Seattle Seahawks guy because of the 60 <laughs> minutes feature, right? Uh, so what's that like having their support, uh, returning the Seattle Seahawks flag to them that they gave to you? And I mean, hell, you've lived the dream because you've actually managed to give a pep talk to your favorite sports team. What was that like? That was going to yeah. be surreal. Yeah. So, I mean, just getting linked up with the Seahawks in 2010 was, was amazing. And um, I remember talking with, you know, the head coach Pete Carroll and the team and everything like that. And then um, they had given me a flag when I was still in a wheelchair and everything like that. And so I always had that flag with me in Afghanistan and, um, you know, I'd, you know, I'd make sure I do some pictures with it, or I'd, I'd put it up on a, on a, on a, a stick. And if it was, if we were in a compound, I'd have it up for a little bit, just so it, you know, flew in Afghanistan for whatever. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I always had the Seahawks flag with me since, you know, my 2012 deployment on and, um, and we were, I mean, it, you know, um, we were in uh, 2018, we were in Faryab and I flew it off my vehicle and we got, we gotten basically about a three day long tick um, troops in contact with the Taliban. And, and uh, like I said, they, they're apparently not Seahawks flag cause they shot the shit out of that flag. <laughs> and so it was really, it, you know, they're not fans of the Seahawks as man. I don't, I, mean, yeah. I guess you guys like um, 49er fans or something, but <laughs> so, but the Taliban had just shot that thing to shreds. And, and so when I, um, when I got to go see the team in 2019 and, and, and actually give the flag back to them. Um, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was one of the coolest, uh, uh, that, that was a bucket list, you know, bucket list thing that I did right there was, um, and gave, gave the flag that they had given me um, when I was wounded in 2010, I was able to give it back to them as I retired out of the army. So. Yeah, it's an, uh, I've got to be honest, it's an amazing image seeing you salute uh, the American flag as it's on the field and you've got your number 12 shirt on as well. Um, yeah. Do you, like, because I'm guessing when you get back in the country, you do lots of like talks for people and that type of stuff. Do you feel like an inspirational person or is it, like most service people that I speak to that have been injured or wounded in, in the course of their duties, they're based pretty much like, come on, I was just getting my job done and I wanted to get things done. Is that how you feel or do you feel sort of gifted with what you've got, if you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't think I'm an, I, I don't think I'm an inspirational person. What I do think is I'm an eye opener. And what I mean by that is so I am, I am your, your 100% basic guy. There is nothing different from me to anybody else. And so people can relate with that. A lot of people, they have a hard time relating because it's like, Oh, this guy's a professional athlete or, Oh, this guy's a you yeah. know Navy steel or whatnot like that. I'm of course he can do this because he does all that. I'm not, I'm just a normal, I'm just a normal guy. And so what I'm able, what I think I'm able to do is, I'm able to help people understand that. And basically long story short, if I can do it, then it can be done. 
Mm -hmm. And, and, and the reason why, you know, I made myself um, very vulnerable in the book was because I needed people to see that I'm a regular dude that has regular dude problems. And, 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 and I've gone through depression and I've had, you know, my ups and downs and I failed and I've quit and I've done these things that happen to you in life. Mm -hmm. And this is what I did as a normal guy to get back onto my feet. Oh, I just got knocked down again. This is how I got back up again. Ah, shit. I just got knocked down again. This is how. And so people can relate to that because I'm not, I'm not the guy in the, in the tower looking down on people. Mm -hmm. We're at the same, we're at the same level. And and that's, um, I think, I think, I don't think I'm an inspiration. I think I'm an eye opener Mm. and it's a way of, wow, this, you know, like multiple people have told me with the book. It's like, I was never a green beret, but your story is me. That's, that's me. Mm. Um, Cause all you got to do is just change the injury around a little bit or the circumstance or the situation. And that's, that's life. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. 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 Uh, now not everybody treated you as an inspiration when you went back into the theater, did they? There were lots of guys. No. <laughs> yeah. Who were looking at you and to use in your terms. Oh, here he is. It's the make a wish green beret. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how th- I've heard you say that that was something that kind of blindsided you because you were like, I'm rehabbed. I've done, I've gone through some really hard yards to get back here into the field. And then mm-hmm. you get there and these guys are like, holy shit, this guy here, you know, come on. Was that really hard yep. to deal with? It was until I, until I took a step. So one thing that people have a hard time with is, when a situation or, or something that is negative or adverse affects them, we tend to focus directly on that. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to look past that. When I was able to take myself out of that situation and actually look at it through their eyes, I completely understood why they were like that. Because we were in the most IED area in Afghanistan for 2012. And here comes this guy that should be dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. are you going to get one guy? Are you going to get someone on my team killed? Yeah. Like this isn't a make a wish foundation for green berets. Like we need guys here that can operate. Like we're glad you're back. Congratulations. You don't belong here. Yeah. And yeah. And so there was a lot of proving it. And again, it was one of those times when I started to go down the poor me victimization mindset rabbit hole but I was able to pull myself out because I just was like, hold on, let me take a look at it through what they're seeing. And mm-hmm. that's when it, you know, that's when it, I was like, Oh, well, yeah, I'd, I'd be thinking the same thing. And yeah. It made sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Right. Now I'm not going to give away the details because again, people are going to go out and buy the book, but Hilltop 2000 and that mountain climb <laughs> as a story Ooh. like yeah. Like no other. I, I gotta be honest, I'm reading it and I'm getting fatigued as I'm reading it. Um uh, uh you've got my complete and utter admiration for that because I know how hard it must have been to actually get there and the fact that yeah. you just kept on going and people are dropping off left, right, and center. So full respect to you. And I'm not even gonna talk about how you got your silver star either, because again, I want people to go out and get the book, but I will say this. If you go out and buy Ryan's book, you can actually find out what it's like to have a five hundred pound bomb drop 17 meters yeah 17 meters 17 meters away from you 
And that's after he's walked through an orchard and had an IED wire wrapped around his chest and a couple of others. So it's not like, uh, yeah, because I mean, I know that lots of people look at your book and go, oh, yeah, IED leg. But there's so many great stories in your book. Full credit to you. I've got to ask the question is there a movie option? Because when I was reading the book, I was like, man, this would make a great movie. So I, I, I have, I have been talked to about it. And um, one, one of the things that I really am passionate about was it has to be the story. It cannot be Hollywood um, drama to make money. And um, I, I, I am a believer in, in God. And I do, um, you know, I'm still a green, you know, a yeah. green beret at mind and, I cuss and whatnot, but um, I do believe in God. And there is, there is a very strong um, belief in my book mm-hmm. on my, on my religious, you know, conviction. Yep. And, um, and so the movie would have to show that too. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking to somebody right now about it and it's a Christian production company, yep. which is, which, is good you know that's that's yeah. good but i'm just very uh <laughs> yeah i'm very you- nervous about having my life on big screen because at least with books i can be fairly certain most people are going to be like i'm not reading that i'll see <laughs> it when it comes out in the movies so yeah. i can kind of control that yeah usually the people that are reading are the ones that you know are are, are, are going to take the time to you know think outside the box and whatnot but a movie, oh man, you you just open yourself up for for a double barrel blast of birdshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the book started off as therapy for you, didn't it? Because it was helping mm-hmm. you deal with all your issues, and then eventually, some of your friends and everybody else are like, "Hey, Ryan, you might want to make this a book." Uh, great advice. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I got two more questions for you. Here's the first one: What advice would you give to people? And I'm not going to say they'll be in a similar situation as you are, but Maybe they've suffered an injury or they think that there's only a small chance to succeed. What advice would you give them? So my, my biggest advice, and you kind of, you kind of led into it when you said their injuries, you know, not quite like mine. That's the thing is um, you don't have to step on an IED to go through, um, to go through hell. Um, My advice that I give to, you know, that I, firmly believe in. And like I said, I, you know, I'm a human being, so I constantly have to get back on azimuth. But uh, my advice is that um, regardless of how bad the situation at this point in time seems, it's only this point in time. How you deal with this situation right now is going to dictate how you look back on yourself and you can either be proud of how you dealt with it or ashamed of how you dealt with it. And so I, I would just, my biggest advice is telling people that when, you know, when you're going through hell and when you're having hard times, understand that you will move past this. There will, there, you will, um, time keeps ticking on. Mm. It will. How are you going to look back on how you handle this situation? Have, have, are looking back on how you're handling that situation right now. And you're probably, you're, you're probably going to um, really be happy with, you know, um, what you do. Cause you don't wishing you wouldn't have handled it that way. So. Yeah. 
Okay. And now the last question, it's the question we always ask. And I bet you've never been asked this on a podcast before. It is the day of reckoning and you are lying in your casket. But strangely enough, you can hear what the pastor is delivering from the pulpit and saying about Ryan Henriksen. What would you like people to say about Ryan Henriksen when you were lying there? Have you ever had that question before on a podcast? No. There you go then. All right. What would you like no, to never, say no. about you? Um, I, I, I think what I would like him to say about me is, is, um, is I made a difference, um, I, a positive difference. And that was one, you know, that was one of the things that I learned after getting blown up. Cause I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, me stepping on that IED actually saved my life and it, um, and it changed my life for the better. And and I, I, I want to, I, I want people to look back and they, and they would say, you know what, man, I remember. And yeah, I learned a lot from him this way because um, I, I believe, I believe today everyone is, we're, we're, we're very self-centered and everybody wants to take, 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 take. That's mm-hmm. the society we're in today. Um, so if, so if the pastor was to say, yeah, Ryan, Ryan, definitely he, uh, he gave us, he gave us a lot, you know, um, and I don't mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, mentally and, and, and emotionally and whatnot like that. Like he let, I, I left a little bit there that benefited somebody. Um, I think, I think that would be, that would be perfect. And then um, I would want him to tell everyone to, to smile. Cause I have um I have three rules in life. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, tell me them because I've read them. They're now up on my wall, Ryan. So tell me what they are. <laughs> so, um, so there's three rules that's you know um, that every SF guy lives by, and that's um, number one is always look cool. Hmm. Number two is um, don't mess up, and number three is if you mess up, look cool messing up. Yeah, yeah. But I even I even have my own personal three rules and that is always look for work, carry heavy shit and smile. Yeah. And I would like the pastor to say like, let's smile. Cause that's what Ryan would be doing right now. Yeah. Great stuff. Hey, uh, Ryan, thank you very much for your time. As somebody who turns 50 this year, I read lots of books and I got to be honest, most of them I don't get inspired by yours. I read and I went, hell, that's an amazing story. Thank you for what you've done. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say thank you for what you're doing because I don't, maybe you've got some inkling, but let's be honest, the fact that we're talking from Afghanistan to New Zealand means that you're, you're going worldwide. So congratulations on that. It's a real big thing. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.